0: Today, we have Arlene Garza on the show. Do you want to know the secret to success in real estate? Arlene Garza is an award-winning real estate investor and syndicator, and alongside Jacob, her husband and business partner, she is a founder of the company Reap Equity. Since founding the business in 2012, they've purchased 16 multifamily properties, The only way for Arlene and her husband Jacob to grow their company successfully is through effective communication with each other, their business partners, their employees, investors, vendor partners, everyone. That's how they've been able to grow their company over the last nine years into 2,500 units worth of. $250 million under management today. Listen to this episode where Arlene discusses why communication is key to success in real estate. Before we jump into the intro, don't take a chance on missing out on a future episode to learn from proven seasoned investors. Go to Apple Podcasts Hit subscribe and please select the five star review. We are currently at 276 five star reviews on Apple Podcasts and are shooting to get to the 300 mark. Thank you to everyone for stepping up. Now, onto the show.
1: Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done,
0: and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Arlene Garza before we start the show. Arlene lives in San Antonio, Texas, with her husband and business partner, Jacob. They've purchased 16 multifamily properties and manage over 2,500 units valued at over $250 million. Arlene held several senior executive banking positions prior to starting the company, Reap Equity. She is not slowing down one bit. In fact, they have a goal of reaching over $1 billion in assets under management. Now, onto the show. Welcome everyone. Today we have a very special guest here with us today. We have Arlene Garza. Arlene, I really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Sure, Darren, happy to be here. I, I applaud you for your efforts to keep it investors educated about multifamily investing. Thank you for, for your efforts.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And, um, you know, just a little bit on how I, I know Arlene. Um, I had Arlene's husband on, Jacob Garza, um, a few episodes ago, episode 43. And I really wanted to have Arlene come on separately because look, she's, they, they are a husband-wife couple that are focused on sponsoring these large multifamily deals. But they both come at it from a different background, and they both focus on different sides of the business. So um, with that, again, thank you for coming on the show. Can you just start by sharing with the listeners how many properties and how many units you guys are invested in?
1: Great. Well, to date, we have purchased and sponsored 16 multifamily properties that we've acquired. Uh, Currently, we uh, have 11 properties. Uh, under our management, uh, 2,500 units and about 250 million or so in assets under management. And I say under management because we also have a management company in-house. So we're vertically integrated.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, you guys have been killing it. And I'm very thankful to be an investor in one of your deals. And um, just had, I mentioned it on the, on the episode with with Jacob but it was my first any kind of exit strategy so you know being able to get approximately 40 percent back um, you know of my investment obviously today with covid reserves part of it is held back for a year but um you know fantastic to be able to to reduce the debt service by over 50 percent and and uh, just crazy. So I'm um, very thankful for the way you guys manage um, not only my money, but all the investors money and in for coming on. So, hey, just to, um, to start out with, you guys have different backgrounds. Can you share your background? I believe you come from the banking space. Um, share a little bit about that with the listeners.
1: Sure. Be happy to. So I um, have a degree in finance. And so one of the logical places you start with the finance degree is in banking. So I spent 20 years uh, with large multinational banks. I uh, started out on the credit side as a lender and managed an international private banking portfolio at the ripe old age of 24 years old. Wow. (laughs)
0: Wow. That was
1: an experience. But it really came about because I am fully bilingual, and um, the gentleman who had managed the department uh, moved back to Spain. And so I asked for the opportunity to interview, and so had a, a very um, great experience working with high net worth individuals um, that live outside of the country. And uh, as part of that, um, that was in the era when the banks failed. I don't know if you remember that period of time, but um, after that happened, I went to the president of the bank because all of my trips had to be approved by him since I was traveling internationally. And said, so, you know, the bank that's coming in to buy us, which was Bank One at the time, doesn't have a lot of international on their books. So I'm thinking I might need to do a little something a little different. So um, a retail branch banking had just uh, been initiated. So I asked to be part of that. And so within a month or so I was managing my first banking center and then, yeah. And then, um, I, through that, I started a kind of a focus on the Hispanic market in the Dallas area. And so I was doing a radio show in Spanish, um, on financial topics Wow! and, um, it really brought in quite a bit of a focus on the marketing side. So, I was recruited by uh, Bank of America to launch their Hispanic marketing program. And so I took that nationwide um, and then decided that I wanted to, you know, dip my toe in the HR world. So I managed an HR team nationwide. So I say all of that because every bit of that experience has come in handy in our multifamily business. Um, I've used every bit of that from. Creating our own employee manual. Of course, I had it reviewed by attorney, but um, you know, doing that, looking at the marketing side of the business, etc. So it's been very, very good experience, and I'm, I'm thankful to Bank of America for for allowing me all those experiences.
0: That's fantastic. I didn't I didn't realize you had been a part of all that. So yeah. let me ask you a few of those um, follow up questions based on your background, um, having. Done the international travel and developed relationships with it sounds like people in Spain was your focus. Um have you
1: primarily Latin America. Yeah, it was Latin America. There was some European, but most of it was Latin America.
0: So you've done sixteen multifamily deals. Have you had any international investors in any of those deals?
1: Actually, I have, but there are folks that now reside in the U.S. and this becomes their primary, um, you know, location. So they're from another country, but have been, you know, I guess, become part of the U.S. economy more than anything. Gotcha. I know there are a lot of investor groups um, with foreign investors. We haven't quite made it through um, the whole tax differences between US and foreign countries, but we've got a really good CPA, an international CPA that can advise us when we get to that point.
0: That's great. I mean, because if you can tap into those international markets, you're going after, you know, different investors that other syndicators aren't talking to. And, and so that's a, that's a plus. Um, it gives the, them a, an ability to get some of their money out of their country and into the US. Um, I have not. In, Worked with any international investors, um, but through talking to our attorney, had you know acquired what would be involved with that, and you guys are probably are, are aware of this too. Um, but they said that one of the easiest ways is is if they f- form a U.S. LLC and then Correct. they fund that LLC, and that LLC becomes the investor. Is that kind of the same thing you've heard?
1: That's yes, that's what I've heard, and. You know, we're located or based out of San Antonio. And so there's a close proximity to Mexico and Latin America. So we've had individuals contact us that are interested. Um, We've just been fortunate to be oversubscribed on our deals so far. But that is an avenue we want to explore further.
0: That's fantastic. Um, you, You also said that all those different avenues played into you know, helped you in your business. Um, so some syndicators, they choose to, to rely on finding the deal, raising money for the deal, asset managing the deal. Others, you know, start taking on more responsibilities. And you guys chose to do that. Once you got over a thousand units, you actually brought property management in-house. And so that's where you get a lot of employees when you have all the employees at all the different properties. So having that HR experience, I I imagine, was a big plus.
1: It it definitely has been. You know, we've got about 70 employees in total. Um, About 15 of those are at the corporate level and the rest are on site. Um, And we found that it's been a really um, fun thing to establish our own culture uh, among our employee base and our team members. And it's been rewarding. We we had a project that we took on um, to develop a screening interview for our leasing agents that would give us some really good insight as to whether what their customer service skills are and what their sales abilities are. And as part of that process, um, our consultant asked our own employees to kind of describe the culture in the company and what they enjoyed about it and It's very rewarding to hear that they enjoy the company, that they feel very valued and respected. So that's a big piece of it.
0: Um, When I talked to Jacob, he said that you manage acquisitions and deal flow. So you know what, that's such a big piece of, you know, finding the deal. Everybody's like, especially in today's market, it's so competitive. Um, Talk about your process. You know, you get deal where do you get deal flow from? You know, you're getting it from brokers, you're also working with other syndicators. So how do you weed through all of that and you know, just determine which deals to go after?
1: That's a really good question because it is a very conser- uh, competitive market today. And you know, what I learned early on was that those relationships that you build early on matter. And so as part of our San Antonio growth, um, we've bought more properties in San Antonio and then Houston is our secondary market uh, from a buying standpoint. Not secondary in uh, terms of focus, but more of size. Um, so in talking to the the San Antonio brokers, you know, I focused on the big brokerage houses, the ones that do multifamily. And although you can find a lot of great off-market deals, I find that it starts with how you perform on the marketed deals. So early on, we, we worked with all of those folks in the, in you know, CBRE, JLL, uh, Northmark, Mercadia, um, Newmark, Knight Frank. So all of the big ones, I established those relationships early on. And what I was very clear with them about is what we were looking for. Um, and one of the things that you know we don't buy our properties with chillers as an example so we've developed our criteria and our criteria is we typically like between 100 and 150 plus units um we like to be you know in a high growth submarket with lots of jobs as most people do but we start our process with the crime map so one of our uh, we have a portfolio analyst on our acquisitions team and her job is once we identify a property that seems to fit the overall parameters, she runs the crime story on it uh, to make sure that there isn't something detrimental for a couple of reasons. One, to gain the best um, renters in a particular market, you got to think about what are they looking for. And if there's crime, they're not going to want their family or themselves in that market. So that's one of first key things and the second piece is when the lender is evaluating a property they pull their own crime data and if there's been crime in the market your loan to value may be shaved a little or they may get skittish about you know um, lending on that particular property and in today's environment bridge debt lenders are much more active and those guys will also be scrutinizing the location of the property I used to say you can put, you know, lipstick on that pig all day long, but, you know, if it's in the wrong location, um, you're going to be limited in your ability to deliver your business plan.
0: Right. That's that's a, that's a great point. And I think you're the first person that really focused on that, on the crime piece early on in the process. Um, investors always want to know, you know, what's the crime in the area, um, but it seems to be, Something that's focused on a little bit later in the process. So you guys hit it up early on. Now, when deals come in, they're coming in through the major brokers. Um, you know, both marketed and non-marketed deals. Um, are they coming into you and Jacob first, or are they going to your analyst first, and they analyze and just bring up the top quality ones to your attention?
1: Sure, they typically come in through me or Jacob, and he will always, you know, forward them on to me. Uh, we learned early on that we have unique abilities, and the way to scale this is for each of us to kind of focus on our on our unique abilities. And with my lending background and a finance background, acquisitions fit. And he's, you know, run a property management software company, so the operations side was a really good fit for him. So when he gets them, he shoots them over to me. Now I've done a good job of introducing our acquisitions manager and our portfolio analyst to the brokers. So some things may trickle into them, but if they do, they generally copy me. Um, as I understand, that we're kind of the investment committee, <laughs> Jacob and I, in terms sure. of making the final decision. So, but we've we've exposed them because ultimately you want to be able to give them the latitude to do the groundwork on acquisitions, and then we come in and do kind of the final touches.
0: Fantastic. So I I, let's see, it's been probably a year since I've been out hunting myself. And, you know, when when I was out um, going after deals, it was competitive then. And it was probably, I don't know, I would say 15 offers, maybe five to seven people going into best and final. And last week I was talking to somebody and they said that now some of the deals are getting 40 plus offers and having like 20 plus people in the best and final round. Are you seeing that? That's crazy.
1: It is crazy. Well, I will say that Dallas-Fort Worth is probably the most competitive market in the Texas triangle. You know, that's Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, and everything in between. Dallas-Fort Worth and Austin, those are the two I would say most competitive markets. And that's what I'm hearing also. We we have not uh, bid on anything in Dallas yet. It's a market we're very interested in. So, but I'll tell you our experience in San Antonio and Houston, sure. it's also been very competitive. So San Antonio, we've not bought a property or added a property since late um, 2019. Wow. Uh, we focused some in Houston. Houston, what I'm finding is there's a lot more inventory, a lot more deals trade. San Antonio, you're looking at about 700 deals, um, multifamily uh, properties. Houston, it's, you know, four times that number. So, you know, you talked about how I built the relationships with brokers. Well, when we decided to go into the Houston market, I had our San Antonio broker um, connections send an email to their counterparts in Houston, making an introduction for us. Oh, and then smart. I went to the market and, and met with them personally and toured some properties, et cetera. But what we're finding is that there are, even in Houston and um, in, in San Antonio, you've got 10 plus in best and final. And so the prices are getting driven up, right? Anytime you have a best and final. And, yeah, everybody you know, wants to
0: what? win. So everybody's pushing, yeah. <laughs> pushing the envelope. Well,
1: well, and I always ask, will there be multiple best and finals? Because you'll get the initial best and final round. And then they always ask if you can go any, you could do any better, right? So you leave gas in the tank for the first round. And, you and if you know, you leave gas in the tank for the second round of best and final. But what we do is we set our top number. We just don't go above it. Because if you go above it, then you're just really... You know, asking to buy a deal that may not make financial sense. So we set our top number, and we start somewhere lower than that. Give ourselves room to go up in best and final, and then leave a little more room in case there's a secondary round. um, You know, beyond the initial best and final.
0: That makes sense.
1: So it's competitive, but um, I think the big thing for us has been our ability to win deals. We closed a deal in December in Houston that's a 95 asset at a really good cost basis. And it's because our reputation as being, you know, good buyers. And I would say to anybody listening, that's what you want. You want to be with a sponsor that's has that reputation of being a good buyer. And if you're a sponsor wanting to be a sponsor, gain that reputation. And, and what that means is you do what you say you're going to do. So, we have not ever contracted any deal that we didn't close now that's not to say that there weren't challenges i mean you will have at least one hair on every deal mm-hmm. that you have to work through but it's it's being able to negotiate and being able to compromise on some things that won't you know impact your your transaction and making sure that at the end of the day you get to the closing table without causing a lot of stress to the seller.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. The other thing that I'm hearing from more and more syndicators is that the agencies are requiring a sponsor that has 3 plus years, you know, experience to be on the deal. So it's making it more more and more difficult for you know, new people to kinda go after deals on their own. Um, Now, I've felt like for a long time that if you wanna play in the large scale multifamily space, you have to partner with somebody that already has experience, but it sounds like the agencies are kinda pushing that as well.
1: Yeah, I think the agencies are getting a little stricter in their requirements. Um, When you look at, let's go back to 2020 and look at COVID. Without an experienced sponsor, That might've been a really tough period um, to get through in many respects. And and I'll just share some examples. For us having the management company was a massive, massive advantage. Um, We had put everybody online for payments uh, in 2019. We put everybody online for applications. So we didn't physically have to be in the office to take care of those two things. But what we did need was to be able to still provide good service to residents. So our team was trained on how to still handle, you know, work orders, service requests from residents in a very safe way. Our concern was for our team, but we also wanted to make sure that residents did, didn't did feel abandoned in that environment where everything was closing down. And what that netted for us was a 10% increase in NOI across the portfolio and a growth in occupancy across the portfolio. But it was because we really were focused on the end user, which is the resident. So what else happened? Well, um, collections declined across the board. Even your best operators saw a 2 to 3% decline in collections. We started that process early. So as soon as we became aware of it, as soon as we started to hear about, you know, eviction moratoriums, we started that conversation with our residents and said, okay, what's your situation? If you're experiencing a job loss or a decline in hours, we want to know about it. We probably filled out 175 assistance applications for our residents ourselves. So we filled them out, delivered them to the resident, explained it to them, and then submitted it on their behalf because we knew people were were having hard times and we wanted to be able to help them also and show them that we cared about them for more than just their rent money. So um, it it really became a really good thing. We did a food drive. Um, We had one of our assistant managers tell us that they had some residents coming in that said, look... I'll pay you your rent, but I'm not sure how I'm going to feed my family this month.
0: That's crazy. So
1: Jacob and I went and bought groceries and our corporate team bagged groceries and we delivered them to the properties and they delivered them to the residents that needed them. So again, it's that focus on the true end user, which is the resident that made a difference. And I say all that because if you were not experienced or you didn't have a third party management company that could provide that. Background: There was a period of time where even we were a little nervous about what is this all going to mean to us. So we ran, you know, some some um, uh, reports to make sure that we had enough reserves to last us for six to twelve months in terms of mortgage payments if we were to need them. And so we knew. We also knew what the occupancy could decline to if it needed to and still be able to, you know, break even. So. We did all of those stress tests to make sure that, you know, we could sleep at night and that our investors, because we were sending them every two weeks to three weeks, we were sending them an update because they were concerned. And so that's where the experience comes into play. And I would say if you're new to this and you want to be a syndicator, by all means, go for it. It's a fantastic space to be in. But partner up with somebody that has the three years or so experience that has been to some of these um, situations that can respond in the appropriate manner
0: yeah that's that's huge how you guys um, you know reacted to to that situation and and my partner on my first indication, Raj Gupta, who you know, yeah um, you know when I got involved, similar to what you said, but he said it a little differently was that. Darren, what you're gonna find is, is that real estate is all about problem solving. Like you, you will have problems that will come up and just learning how to manage through those problems is a big differentiating factor of whether people stay in the business or not. And, yes. and so you're kind of saying the same thing.
1: Yeah, very well said. I agree with Raj. It, it is problem solving and critical thinking. You got to, you know, think on your feet every day.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. So, hey, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. Like you and Jacob are working together, husband, spouse, like growing a company. You know, you were in two different businesses. You were in banking and he was in IT. Um, Every spouse doesn't work out (laughs) as well working together day to day. So talk about that transition.
1: Okay, and and I will say that in all honesty, the initial part of the transition was a challenge. Um, You know, I come from a corporate background where everything kind of was we were trained to handle things in a certain way, and there's a process. and And he's a true serial entrepreneur, um, you know, who he was used to very much stating, building his team, and kind of letting it all work work through him. And so we really, initially, we were overlapping. We overlapped so much, it was crazy. Um, Where, you know, I would bring something to the table and he would look at it and then we'd discuss it and then we'd look at it again. We just felt like we were not wasting time, but we were using time inefficiently. So I actually went um through the strategic coach program, um, I would go to Chicago, and one of the things they had us do was to actually go through and write down everything that you do in a day or in a week. And then they had you really point out which of those things did you believe you were really good at, uh, which ones did you love, and which ones did you hate. Um, and so from that, you were able to kind of look at what were your strengths and where were your your not so strong, you know, elements of of what you like to do. And so I came back from that trip and I told Jacob, let's have a strategy session for a couple of hours. And so I walked him through that process and I said, you know, I love the numbers. I love talking to the lenders. I've been a lender. I love talking to the brokers and he really enjoyed the operations side. So that's when we decided to divide and conquer before that we were overlapping we were both trying to make a decision coming from two different perspectives and so i'm happy to say we made it through that right process. right exactly <laughs> <laughs> it <In> one piece <laughs> or together exactly um, but-
0: well you showed how to do it too i mean look you, you you shared that look it wasn't easy you know but you had to figure out a way through it and now you guys have figured out your your niches within the same company
1: I agree. And, and it really is about communication, because if I had chosen to remain silent and just take that the, those learnings from strategic coach and just say, oh, well, look at him in another year. You know, I, I again, we were not as efficient as we could have been. And I feel like now it, it's it's nice. He does ask my opinion on things and I will always share, you know, new acquisitions with him. Um, but, you know, we can move forward on things without waiting for somebody else to review something. So it's made it a a really good thing. And I'd say whether you're partnering with a spouse or you're partnering with another partner, it's a relationship. It's, It's like a marriage. It's a business marriage. And so have those conversations early. Try to understand what are people's fortes? What are the things that they love to do versus what is the other person's? And you'll find that there's usually two different skill sets and you can leverage those skill sets um, very well if, if you have that conversation on the front end.
0: That that's huge. Um strategic coach program was is that um Dan something?
1: Dan Sullivan, yes. Dan
0: Sullivan. Yes. It's funny that this was brought up so just a few weeks ago, I had somebody on the show, Erin Hudson. I don't know if you know her, um, but she's actually in San Antonio now too. She's originally from Southern Cal, um, but she br- swore by this book and um, who, not how. And yes, and Dan Sullivan, you know, co-wrote it with a with a uh, another author, but um, you know. It talks about, look, you don't have to learn how to do everything, you know, find the, another person that wants to do that and who's really good at it. And that's what you guys kind of did as a as a couple is you kind of figured out which pieces that you love, which pieces he loves. And then you hired employees to do, you know, other stuff and that they love to do. That,
1: that's a really good thing. Who not how is a great one. There's also another one called the self-managing company. And it is all about delegating what it is that you really shouldn't be working on because you can hire, you know, the team to do it. When we first started out, you know, people always ask me, well, who was your first employee? Accounting. We hired an accountant because that is a very tedious and important um, piece to have in the company. So we hired an accountant and then we hired an HR person. Why? Because the numbers and to the people. Um, they're big pieces of any business, but in particular, multi family. And so I agree. It's the who, not how. We've, you know, built the team over time. And as I said, we've got 15 in the corporate office and, you know, another, you know, 55 or so on site. And it's a business. So when you're looking at what kind of multifamily business do you want, build an org chart. You may not have names to put into some of those boxes, but understand that over time, you want to fill those boxes. Because once you fill those, then you give yourself more time to focus on, in my case, finding deals. Um, I have an acquisitions manager that does the first pass of the underwriting. Um, And then we will sit down together and we'll review it and fine tune it. So, as you know, underwriting takes a long time to to walk through. Um, We added a portfolio analyst whose job is to look at the crime map, whose job is to look at the market studies and gather all the information. The rents and the income side of your underwriting is the most important. Not to say that expenses aren't. But you can manage expenses in a different way. Your your third-party management company is already gonna have kind of their set of expense parameters. We have our own for our management company. And the lender actually uses ours because they can look is at our right? portfolio. Yeah, they look at our portfolio and they know our run rate. Right. We submit that to them on the front end so they understand our expense profile. And on the income side, if you get those wrong, you're not going to hit your numbers. You're not going to meet your business plan. So that's a key piece of it. And so we spend a lot of time on that. But I have team members, you know, that that do the first pass of it. And But I review everything. I, I want to make sure that if we put something in front of our investor group, that it makes financial sense. And, and for us, because we invest in every deal that we do. And I feel like if, if it's good enough, For me, then I'm comfortable sharing that with other investors.
0: Sure. So, um, for the listeners' benefit, talk um, just a little bit more about that on the rent side. Um, You know, in order to get comfortable with the rents, you need to look at other properties in the area to see, you know, who's getting what kind of rent now and what can we do with this property if we, you know, bring some excess rehab money to it. So uh, talk a little bit about, you know, how you guys look at that.
1: Okay. So what we start with is our market studies. So our asset manager weekly is receiving market study data from our properties. There's a template. So every week, all of that information is sent in and he's reviewing that. So So we have the market.
0: What what exactly is included in that market study? So you have property A, how many properties in San Antonio do you have?
1: We've got eight.
0: Eight properties. So they're, they're spread out. And then each of those property managers on a weekly basis send in a market study into corporate?
1: Correct. Yes. And so what they're capturing is um, occupancies in their sub market. They're capturing rents. They're capturing concessions um, so that we have a full picture of what is the offering in that market? How much are they able to get in that market? And- Understand that there's the second piece to that, which is you have your non-renovated units and you have renovated units. We want to understand both and what's the delta between the two. The other piece we're capturing is what are single-family rentals in that submarket, Because the single-family rentals are, are typically going to be your top end of the market. But if people can get into a single-family rental, they're probably going to prefer that over an apartment if they're apples if to close. apples. Yeah, close. Um, so we take a look at all of that data, and then we subscribe to CoStar and Smart Data. And so what that allows us to do is have a checkpoint. So managers are sending it in. Our portfolio analysts will do some spot calling, and we'll also check that the market survey data That we receive from the properties is accurate Um, and so we have all those three ways to do it and then when we're looking at an acquisition we personally go shop the competitors we look at what are the renovated units look like what are they getting are they offering any concessions so in other words are they pricing them too high so they're having to you know give back some of that um, you know for the people that are moving in and so all of that data goes into our underwriting and we're also looking at as i said costar has projections now i will say that costar is probably the most conservative data set out there Um, they own apartments.com and so they're gathering the data from all their apartments but if you compare them to smart data and other sources they tend to be the most conservative so that gives you some guidelines when you're looking at your rents you know costar's providing one thing. Smart data is providing another, and there's other sources. Sure. So we like to get a comparison to make sure that they're all in the same general ballpark.
0: Well, that's another benefit of being, one, a syndicator for nine or 10 years, owning, you know, having purchased 16 deals, currently managing 2,500 units with 11 properties. You get all that data, you know? Um, Correct. When you're a first time syndicator, you don't have all that data you know you're, you're looking at the property the you know you're trying to create a business plan and you, then you're going and shopping you know the properties close by um, but you may not have CoStar, you may not have smart data um, and you don't have the the market studies from all the other properties like you have right. um, so that gives you that's definitely an edge for people that get more and more experienced in the business that they have one developed further relationships you know to to give them deals you know um, secondly they share data with other syndicators and with brokers and lenders and and then you have access to to more data to make decisions
1: correct and you know the brokers will all send out their market reports um, and there, some of them are down to the submarket so we always like to look when we're shopping, whether San Antonio, Houston, Dallas. We pull the submarket reports to see where rents are trending. So the submarket, for example, in San Antonio may be Northwest, right, where a particular property is. So we look at the Northwest submarket, compare it to the San Antonio market overall, to determine is it a better submarket. So all of that data and, and the brokers have all of that available on their websites. Or they periodically will send those to you if you're already on their email list. So I would recommend that you try to get on every email list for the big brokerage houses that you can. For two reasons: one, you're going to see all the deals coming across, and two, you're going to see all the data related to the market.
0: Yeah, that's huge. Um, You know, one of the things that Jacob said was you have to go through all the steps. You know, if you're a new person, you have to go through all the steps and. And when i talk to people and people ask you know i'm a guest on their shows and they're like what's the hardest part i'm like every part was hard you know the first time you do it and and your mind changes right like so when you first look at a certain deal it might not look like a good deal to you because you don't want to live there but then six months later after chasing a bunch of deals that that deal may look really attractive you know not because you've changed your mindset from you know Looking at it from, hey, I wouldn't want to live there to, hey, there's there's opportunity there. You know, if we if we rehab this, uh, we could really, you know, bring this up to the, the submarket standards here. So.
1: I agree. I think, you know, when you look, COVID did teach us a little bit about the different asset classes. Um, the A's were hit with a lot of concessions. You had folks that, you know, could no longer afford an A class property rent, and so they went down to a B class. Um, And B class held up really pretty well. It maintained good vacancy, had some rent growth. And then you had your C class. C classes typically had the best rent growth, except what we saw in COVID was that delinquency was much higher in general at the C properties. So that kind of helped reinforce our buying strategy. We, we are focused on B class properties, not to say we wouldn't buy an A if the metrics were right or a C if the metrics were right, but we, we have our parameters. And so what we learned is that that B class still is a very good sweet spot to be in.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. Great point. Um, let's go back to when you mentioned communication and communication know we talked about you and jacob as a a couple but let's talk about partners um you know you talked about communicating up front um you know as as much as you can get things out in in you know out in front and i know that when i went to um to raj his first question was you know what are your expectations of your responsibilities versus mine Mm -hmm. you know and I think that's a great approach. I have a lot of people that reach out to me on Instagram, they're trying to get into their first deal and they're like, you know, how do you structure the, you know, the the partnership and what percentage of the GP should I get and they get? And I'm like, it all depends. It depends on the value you're bringing to the table and the value that the other partners bringing into the table and what responsibilities that you want to take on versus the other person. And you wanna build it so it's a win-win for both. And, and so what's your take on establishing? Now you're, you're doing that a bit with going into Houston. I've seen you partner with, with a couple different um, syndication teams. And um, so, you know, what's your approach on that?
1: Very good question because as you said, initially it was just Jacob and I, and it's much easier because, you know, we know each other's strengths and we know what each one of us will bring to the table. But in working with a new team at other co-sponsors, that was our first question to them is what can you bring to the partnership? What is it that you want to do? What is it that you want to learn? And I will say that, you know, for, I'm going to look at it right now from the standpoint of maybe a newer co-sponsor coming in. They need to be very forthright in what is their net worth? What is their liquidity? What is their background? Come to the table with a bio and a resume so that somebody can really understand who are you, what can you bring to the partnership? And I would say from that perspective, they should also ask the question, what am I gonna be exposed to? Am I going to be allowed to be part of the lender discussions or to see the lender term sheets? Um, am I gonna have any of the dialogue with the broker or is that all gonna go through the primary sponsor? So. That's part of what you said in terms of expectations. What are your experta- expectations coming into a partnership? From the lead sponsor standpoint, you know, it's reputation, right? And, and who is going to make the decisions? If you have a newer co sponsor, they don't necessarily have the experience to weigh in on the big decisions. And I think your investor group is going to want to understand. How are decisions going to be made in the partnership? Because if you have five or six people weighing in on something, you're going to have five or six potentially different perspectives. Sure. So, so understanding who, who's going to be involved in the asset management, that is critical because that's the day to day. That is, as we do, getting the market surveys. Talking to the regionals, understanding what they're seeing in the market, and then running those numbers. I mean, we know every week how many leases are coming up in the next week, in the next two weeks, in the next month. What is the pr- you know, what is the plan to renew those folks and the ones that we don't want to renew? What is our approach to getting new folks in the door? So it's always watching the occupancy, always watching the income trends. Are renewal rents going up? Are they staying flat? In COVID, you know, for a couple of months there, we kept them flat because our goal was to keep people at the properties. We didn't want to be trying to bring in new residents when nobody was going looking, anywhere. Right. Yeah, nobody was looking. They so. were they were still poking around on the computer looking, but they weren't willing to move because They expose themselves to movers, they expose themselves to a lot of things. And so, um, what you know, the whole goal of it is to, to really understand when you're partnering, what do I bring to the table to the partnership? And then, what does everybody else bring? And then, ultimately, who's going to run the property? Who's going to do the asset management? And how are the big decisions going to be made? You know, one of the biggest ones is exit. You talked about exit strategy. When we buy a property, we have multiple exit strategies, right? We can refinance or do a cash out supplemental, or we can sell it. Well, because rates dropped, you know, for three of our properties, the best option was not to sell, but to refinance it, return investor capital, and still continue to operate it. Because we knew there were good assets that would hold up for a long time without needing a big capital injection but just as easily we could have sold them. So what we presented to investors was the numbers for both options. And we let them be part of the decision in what makes the most financial sense. And so those are things where somebody's gonna have to take the lead on those communications with investors. That's the other piece. Who's going to do that? Is it coming from the person doing the asset management? Is there somebody better that's doing investor relations and communications? So all those pieces again put them all on an org chart put all those activities on a chart who's going to do which pieces of it in the partnership
0: yeah that's huge um i i I really like your um comment about being being up front right away and you know i think that some new people in the business kind of want to i don't know they want to it to you make it or whatever you want to say <laughs> they want they want to try to gloss over some of their weaknesses but you know what I've found dealing with multifamily syndicators is that look everybody has value to provide, right I mean if you're a new person, you have value to provide but you have to be upfront about what that value opportunity is if look if you I've met people that some people that, Look, I just sold a business, and I'm, you know, I'm really liquid. I've got, you know, a million, million and a half that I need to put to work. Well, that's going to be attractive to to a syndicator to to sure. be able to take, you know, a big chunk of the equity raise. And, um, but somebody else is like, look, I, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I'm a I'm a young guy, but i I got a lot of hustle. Well, be upfront about it, you know, and. Right. And some syndicators are going to say, you know what? I'm not looking for somebody with that skill set, you know, and somebody else is going to say, that's awesome. I don't want to be the guy running out and, and go chasing every deal. So you have to partner up with the right people. And the, the earlier you have that conversation and you align with the right people, the better off both you and your partner will be.
1: I agree. And I think in addition to looking at the skills that everybody brings to the table, What are the values? That one's probably bigger uh, because if. Yeah,
0: that's huge.
1: You know, in our case, the investor and the resident come first, right? Um, So our decisions, you know, on the refinances, just as an example, the sponsor comp was zero to us. That was not our consideration. Our consideration is what is the best for our investors? And and so that was the decision that was made. Um, But you have to understand what are the culture, what's the culture created in that partnership and what are the values? And I think those are questions that have to be asked up front. If there was a need for a cash call, are you willing to put your percentage of your sponsor comp into the property versus doing a cash call? You know, so understanding the liquidity and the strength of everybody on that sponsorship team, the lenders looking at it. But I think sometimes the partnership doesn't look at it. I don't know if it's you don't want to ask those questions or sensitive, whatever, but you should. And when push comes to shove, what are you willing to do to keep the property, you know, moving forward? Those are big, big questions.
0: Big questions. And you you said something else that Look, listeners, if you are not in this space and you're getting in this space, just know that people are going to ask you about your financial situation. I know a lot of other industries you're in, you don't, you, a lot of people hide, not necessarily hide, but I don't know why, but we're raised not to talk about money with our neighbors and our friends and our, you know, it's just something. You know, we might talk about the car or the house we bought, but we're not going to talk about what our net worth is and our liquidity. Um, but in this world of, of you know, high unit multifamily, it's a necessity because the lenders are going to ask that question. So the syndicator is going to come at you right away because they, they need to know. Right. Hey, Arlene, I'm going to sw- switch it up on you again. Sure. where did you grow up? How'd you grow up,
1: up? Okay. I grew up in West Texas, a little town called Kermit, uh, okay. like the frog, but it was named way before the frog was ever invented. How many uh, people
0: population?
1: It, well, it would fluctuate between three and 6,000, depending w- that on whether is oil, small. yeah, it depended on whether oil was booming or not. So West Texas in the Permian basin. So oil and gas was the primary industry. Um, my father was in all all field construction. Um, he and my mom uh, had 10 kids. 10 so kids?
0: Where do you fit 10, in?
1: I'm fourth from the top, the oldest girl. So wow. I have seven brothers and three sisters. Uh, two sisters, sorry. Two sisters. And so um, it was a great place to grow up. It was one of those towns where you didn't lock your door at night because... There was no reason to, uh, and if you were doing something you shouldn't do, the neighbor told your parents before (laughs) your parents even found out. And, you know, at this, at at school, um, my, my father and mother both realized that education was a huge piece of our future. And all 10 of us went to college on scholarship. Did you really? Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of it was because we knew that the resources just weren't there to send 10 of us to college. So we had to do our part and get good grades and get scholarships so that it would help our parents. So all 10 of us went to college um, We've quite a few entrepreneurs. And I think some of that comes from the creativity of just being in that environment, in that household. Um, When it was report card day, And dad got home from work. We lined up in age order and you showed your report card to dad and you did not want to hear, do you think you can do better? (laughs) You, you know, I, you, you knew that there was that kind of spirit of competition, um, but we helped each other also. I mean, we had varying ages, so we sat around the kitchen table and an older one helped a younger one with algebra or whatever it was that we were learning. But a great environment. We still have a, a blast every time we have a family get together. Um, you know, just there's so many of us now. I think there's 35 of us just immediate family. So wow. So it, it was a lot of fun growing up. But we also learned the value, the value of money and the value of an education very early on.
0: That's huge. And then you went and I mean, you were in the corporate world for a long time. Um, Did you, as growing up, did you ever think to yourself, like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur or I'm going to start my own business? Or did that only really come into your mind after you and Jacob kind of got together and he has more of that entrepreneurial go out there and and take a shot?
1: Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because my dad um, started a small construction company because Again, it was all in gas, so there were booms and busts, and so he had a small construction company in our hometown that he made, you know, additions and carports and things for for the folks in our community. And so I watched him start that, and you know, he had an eighth grade education. He taught himself how to read blueprints. He, you know, moved up the ranks at his companies, but it was all through sheer determination. Um, so that was always kind of in the back of my mind. But, you know, when you go into the corporate world, you get so involved in what's happening there and how do I move up in this environment? And, you know, when Jacob started his business, he came home one day and said, you know, I'm going to start a software company. What do you think? And I thought, OK, I mean, because to me, I knew we could be fine on my, you know, income and we looked at all the numbers and the data and I said, sure. But it was through watching him, he would come home in the evenings and he would talk about what happened at work and what happened with the company, asked for advice. And, you know, our kids um, at dinner heard all of that. And I will say to all parents out there, your kids are listening, even though they don't act like they're listening. Right. And so it was a really good experience for them also to really think outside of the box. And I can be an entrepreneur. I can do something on my own. Um, and so now our daughter works with us. She's our portfolio analyst. Um, she worked for a company in Florida, um, bigger multifamily company, so she got some experience there. And our son is getting his degree in real estate finance and development. So for us, we see this now as a legacy business. We want them to become involved with the business. We want them to learn it. Um, and they also worked with us when they were in high school. They worked on property. Uh, leasing or maintenance. So they understand the mechanics of what goes on at the properties.
0: That's awesome. Um, you know, something you said about your dad, and it, you know, it is part of you is that he, he taught himself, you know, he taught himself certain things. And I think that, look, if you're a listener, you're looking to get into real estate investing, multifamily investing or you're looking to start your own business, you know, any of the above, you know, to go out on your own. You're not going to have it all covered before you start, you know? So you're going to have to actually step over the line, take a chance, and then you a lot of it you learn along the way, you know? So, yes, everyone says the first step, get educated, you know? Read books, listen to podcasts, talk to other people who've done it join a mentorship group. But with all of that, you're still going to learn a lot along the way. And, you know, whether you knew it or not at that time, your dad, you know, showed you that, you know, and he did. Um, that's huge. Yeah. He
1: really did. Yeah. You know, to, to, to have him come home and, and, you know, lay out on the kitchen table, the projects he was working on, the things he was bidding on, um, At the time, you don't realize it, but it comes back to you later. Um, You know, my sister has a large construction company in Dallas. She's doing work on DART projects and the DFW airport projects. And she didn't have a construction background. But I, I think sometimes it's the necessity that's created when you don't have a lot you learn to get creative and learn, you become a sponge and learn everything you can so that you can move forward. Even today, I think my, my most favorite thing is to, to look up articles on what's happening in the lending environment or what's happening on the multifamily space or what's happening with consumers in general. So I think it's it's a never ending process of, you know, educating yourself and learning from others. I ask a lot of questions, you know, from
0: brokers. I don't, I don't <laughs> doubt that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> from brokers, from anybody that comes across, I want to understand who they are and what is it that they do and, you know, how does that relate in any possible way with what we do? And it's a people business. Multifamily is people all the way around, from your team to the residents, and you know, in your communities. It is people. And ask a lot of questions and other everybody you come across ask them what is it that you find most intriguing or most challenging in what you're doing and you can always learn something from everybody
0: that's huge listeners look this is you know arlene garza who has you know 2500 units you know like you don't stop you know when i interviewed her husband jacob he's said that you know look they're looking they're talking to people that have 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 units, trying to learn from them. It doesn't stop. You know, you, you, you help the person below, you know, figure out how to get to where you were years ago. And then you're looking above to, to other people to try to help you get to where they are. And so, so that's huge. Um, what's the next big stretch goal for you guys? You guys are the other thing I wanted to mention to you. I don't I mentioned it to Jacob was I get these real estate, you know, publications Texas related and you know they break it out by market and every now and then they'll have you know a little box that shows top multifamily owners in San Antonio and you guys are always up near the top of the list and and so that I'm like I know them they're awesome like I'm so excited <laughs> whenever I see that so um but what's the next tr- big stretch goal? Because you you guys have accomplished so much already.
1: Well, you know, it's our, our, our next goal was to hit 3,000, which I think we'll hit probably in the next six to nine months, right? Awesome. So that's exciting. And then the next one is obviously five and then 10. I think if we can hit 10,000 units in the next five to six years, um, our big goal is to have a billion dollars in assets under management in the next five years.
0: That's awesome. I love it when people have these huge, massive goals. Because, I mean, look, even if you don't hit it, you end up at 950. <laughs> That's pretty darn good. Correct.
1: Um, if you don't set it high enough, you won't get there. You know, So you've got to set it high enough that you can have something to reach for.
0: That's huge. That's huge. Um, Arlene, what do you like to do for fun outside of work?
1: I love to write. Um,
0: do you really actually, Yes. Like, re- when like, I was... like articles or, or poems or what?
1: Well, I've actually written a novel, Really? Uh, a fiction novel, which I'm got the goal to, to get it wrapped up and send it to publishers before the end of the year. Um, it's a, a novel set in West Texas where I grew up and um, I've actually been to New York a few years back and met with agents and there's interest um, based on the topic. Um, So I just have to finish it. Uh, But I'm having so much fun buying properties. I just have to allocate some time uh, to finish Um, the novel.
0: That's so like, out. look, I, I know people that write books, but they're writing books in their kind of there's their niche, you know. It's it's a a business edition, you know. Um, but to write a novel, um, just because you love to do it, and and you haven't been an author, so like it's all new and it's scary and exciting at the same time. So. Um, I applaud you. That's awesome. That's something I didn't know Thank about you. you for sure.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I always think about JK Rowling who wrote the, you know, Harry Potter series. She was rejected a hundred times before somebody took her novel. Yes. So I tell myself, okay, put it out there. So. Yes.
0: Yep. Um, so I've gone to, um, this conference, entrepreneurial conference out in in San Diego called secret knock and it's put on by a gentleman, uh, by the name of Greg Reed. and. Um, I went back to a follow up a few months after the conference, and we, it was smaller subset of group in, at his house. And he brought us all up to you know his second floor, and he pulled out this uh, basket, and it was full of you know envelopes. And he dumped the you know the basket upside down; these envelopes went everywhere. And we're like, "What the heck is he doing?" Right? And he's like, "Those are all my rejection letters on my first book." Wow. And now he's written, I don't know, 20, 30 books, but like, I I don't know the exact number, I'm I'm throwing that out. But the point of that is he was rejected and rejected and rejected and he didn't quit. And he got the first one done, and then after the first one, the second and third and fourth and fifth got so much easier.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a very big message whether it's multifamily or writing a book, you just don't give up. You just keep going at it. Um, and you try to learn something every time you approach it. Um, so the writing is very new, very different. Um, but I did take a short little course on how to develop your outline, your character, your plot. So again, I educated myself and, um, We'll see. My goal is by end of year. And now I've set it out in public, so I've got to finish it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, So where do people reach you if they want to reach out and get to know you a little better? What's the best way for them to contact you?
1: Uh, Two ways. Uh, My personal email is Arlene at ArleneGarza.com, but it's spelled A-R-L-E-E-N. Or you can reach us through invest at REAP equity, R-E-E-P equity.com. Um, our investor relations coordinator, Rebecca Derby, will most likely reach out if you contact me that way. And she'll set up a phone call so that we can get to know each other better.
0: That's fantastic. Listeners, I, I want you to know, um, you know, when I got involved in the space, they, these guys were the one of the first people I wanted to get involved with, and I've uh, been very happy with the way they manage the deal, the way they communicate the deal, and um, they are just very classy in how they approach everything. Um, they have, they had a a conference down in San Antonio where we got to go visit the properties and do a bus tour, and they brought people in from Fannie Mae and all these other people to speak to the investors, and um, that. That I haven't seen any other syndicators do something to that scale before. Um, in addition, you know, just a few weeks ago, I got a big basket in you know my house, and it was the Garzas. You know, when I invested in their deal, I got a little thank you gift. They just do like the little things, and if they do that for the investor, you just have to believe they're doing that for the tenants also, and for their employees. And so I just think they're a class act. Um, Get to know both Arlene and Jacob. Um, I hope you enjoyed that one. And until next week, signing off. Thanks, Arlene.
1: Thank you, Darren. Have a good one. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend.